Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is Foreign Exchanges for April 2nd, 2020. I hope everybody's still staying safe out there and practicing good judgment uh, in terms of social distancing. Uh, I don't know what it's like where you are right now, but here in Virginia it's becoming easier and easier to practice social distancing because nothing's open anymore. Uh, we've gone, our state has gone into uh, pretty much full lockdown. You can go out to buy groceries, you can go out to, obviously if you have a medical need to go out, if you have uh, to pick up medicine or go to the hospital or see a doctor, uh, if you have to go to work, if you're still, you know, if your company is still uh, doing business, uh, then you can do that. Um, or if you're, you know, a gig worker, or somebody who is is kind of has to be out there working right now, or uh, you know, is out there working, I guess it's okay. Uh, you can go out and take a walk, uh, so I can walk my dog, or I can go out for a little walk to uh, get some exercise. But other than that, pretty much uh, we're on a stay-at-home basis at this point uh which you know i stay at home most of the time anyway but uh it's still i know it can still get to be a drag and uh i hope as you're being safe and as you're you know sort of practicing good judgment about uh containing the pandemic i also hope that you're uh finding some ways to stay uh engaged and and not fall into a, a the sort of uh you know, mental and I think emotional uh, state that that being cooped up like this can uh, can cause. So uh, uh, I'm trying to do my part here by again providing you guys with some relevant uh, and hopefully interesting content uh, related to partly related to at least uh, the circumstances under which we find ourselves. I'm very excited about today's guest. Uh, in a moment here, I'm going to be joined uh, via Skype by Patrick Wyman. Uh, Patrick is a, an actual, honest-to-goodness historian. Uh, he studied ancient Rome, uh, and he's uh, both an excellent podcaster and an excellent writer. He's got, I think, a lot of things to say, a lot of important things to say uh, about the present moment. Uh, and we're going to be talking about a, a kind of host of things. I know uh, I'm sort of, uh, uh, I was reminded again uh, of the request that we got in uh, our weekly AMA thread uh, a couple of weeks ago to do some discussion, kind of uh, just historical content about previous pandemics throughout history and uh, you know i think that's uh, you know a welcome distraction on some level uh and patrick is certainly uh, he was the first person i actually, actually i thought of when i got that question uh to bring on because uh, of course uh, his field is uh ancient rome and so he's got some experience talking about and covering looking at uh the effect of disease on a on a society uh but he's also uh written a piece for Mother Jones magazine uh, that came out a couple of weeks ago called How Do You Know If You're Living Through the Death of an Empire? Uh, apropos of, of nothing in particular, I suppose. Um, <laughs> so we'll get into that. Uh, but first, I guess I should introduce Patrick if you're not familiar with him. 
Uh, as I say, Patrick is an honest-to-goodness uh, historian. He's also uh, got two podcasts under his belt now. Uh, he did a podcast called The Fall of Rome, which I highly recommend. Uh, if you're a fan of, for example, The History of Rome, which is one of the kind of uh, you know iconic podcasts, one of the first in the genre, so to speak, uh, and Mike Duncan's work, uh, I highly recommend Patrick's uh, podcast on the fall of Rome. You will certainly get some discussion of disease and what it can do to a society in there. Uh, he's also got a podcast that that podcast you know, he did that podcast it was a was focused and uh, he's moved on now to a second podcast called the Tides of History, uh, which I also recommend uh, very highly. Uh, it covers more of an eclectic mix of topics, so uh, depending on the episode, you'll get uh, you know something on uh, the Ottoman Empire, you'll get something on the Black Death, uh, which he just did a recent. Uh, episode on you'll get something about pirates there's a whole uh, whole range of topics it's uh, it's uh, you know very interesting mix i think um and he, he gets a lot of great guests on there so highly recommend uh the tides of history you can find both of these shows at wondery.com uh, i'll put links to them in the show description uh and also of course you can find them on apple podcasts or wherever you kind of listen to your uh to your podcast but definitely recommend both of those uh and the piece how do you know if you're living through the death of an empire it's at mother jones i will also link to that uh, in the show description we're going to be talking today about three great pandemics that struck the roman empire uh, we're going to talk first about the Antonine Plague uh, that hit in the middle uh, of the second century AD uh, between 165 and 180. Uh, it's also known as the Plague of Galen because Galen the physician is our main source, I think. Uh, Patrick will have a better sense of this than I will. Uh, the main source for, for understanding it. Uh, we're going to talk about the Plague of Cyprian. Uh, which hit the Roman Empire in the middle of the 3rd century, uh, around 249 to the early 260s. Um, both of these plagues had serious repercussions in terms of diminishing the um, available manpower of the Roman Empire militarily, uh, in terms of changing its culture and uh, changing its sort of... Uh, uh, literary history the plague of cyprian for example is considered one of the causes of the so-called crisis of the third century uh, in which the politics of the empire completely changed from uh, the principate period to the dominate period again patrick will be able to talk about this uh, better than i will um, and then we're going to talk about the plague of justinian i think we'll probably spend more time here because it's the one uh, both of us are more familiar uh, most familiar with of these three uh, the plague of Justinian struck, of course, in uh, uh, the 540s, so after the quote-unquote fall of the Western Roman Empire. Uh, but it helped to, uh, among other things, uh, it brought to an end Justinian's, uh, the Emperor Justinian's plans to recapture, reconquer uh, much of the, the Western Empire. He had already done that done some of that but uh you know they were had designs on more that were uh, interrupted by this plague and it f severely weakened uh the roman society of the time to the point where you can draw uh, some connections between the plague of justinian and the arrival uh in the seventh century of uh the arabs uh, the early muslims if you will uh and their success in uh, conquering the the much of the Roman Empire and uh, of conquering the entire 
Persian Empire, there is some uh, some evidence that the plague passed into Persia uh, at some point and, and wreaked havoc there as well, weakening the Persian Empire. Uh, so we will talk about those, uh, and then we'll get into more modern stuff. We'll talk about his Mother Jones piece uh, and what kind of connections or parallels one might draw between uh, the Roman Empire and the current American Empire and whether we're seeing uh, a similar kind of decline and what decline generally looks like. I think we've uh, historians have a much more nuanced view of that question nowadays than maybe, you know, even a couple of decades ago, certainly back in the time of, uh, you know, somebody like Edward Gibbon, who wrote literally the book on the decline and fall of the Roman Empire and kind of put the, the fall of the empire in at, at, at a specific point in 476. Uh, but I'll talk to Patrick a little bit about why that date is uh, inadequate. And then we can talk about sort of the processes and, and the general kind of ways that empires uh decline or weaken and and uh you know you can draw your own conclusions about whether you see those things happening uh, in the united states right now i have to make another caveat here as i did in the last episode when i interviewed uh kelsey atherton uh we are not recording this podcast on april 2nd we are recording it uh, on march 31st so if anything that we discuss here hopefully it will all be timeless and there will be no chance of us being kind of overtaken by events but in the event that we are uh before i plan to release this podcast i'm trying to like space things out a couple of days here a couple of days there uh, so nothing gets crowded out but in the event that we say something here uh, in this episode that you're listening to this on like thursday or friday and thinking what are they talking about this is like it's this is already you know out of date uh it, it's because it is literally out of date because we recorded it before uh whatever uh may have happened in the interim hopefully nothing but we'll see uh so with that understanding uh let me get patrick on the line here and we will start the interview all right. Uh, as I said in the intro, uh, I'm being joined by Patrick Wyman. Patrick is a podcaster extraordinaire and historian uh, who studied uh, the Roman Empire. Uh, he's had he's done two podcasts now: The Fall of Rome, which uh, I highly recommend if you're interested in Roman history, uh, and he's got one going on now called The Tides of History, uh, which covers a little more kind of eclectic mix of things. Uh, those are both available at Wondery.com or wherever you find your podcasts. Uh, Patrick has also written a piece for Mother Jones Magazine called How Do You Know If You're Living Through the Death of an Empire uh, that we will get to a little bit later in the interview. I want to start uh, with a little... Uh, pandemic uh, porn basically <laughs> to, you know give people a little little cathartic release we're not the first ones who have gone through something like this um and then we'll get into to a little more serious i think uh, relevant to to current events stuff toward the end uh i will link to the shows uh, the podcasts and the uh, patrick's piece in the show description uh but patrick is here now and thank you for, so much for being on the show hey thank you for having me it's a real pleasure chatting with you uh so i i as i told you i got uh, this request uh a couple of weeks ago from from a subscriber to like do some content on previous plagues or previous pandemics and i thought it was a really good idea and you were the the first person i thought of to ask to to come on because of course you studied 
Rome and you've studied the fall of Rome and there's definitely some disease related components that go into that. Um, and so, you know, I figured uh, it's not the Black Death, which I know is what everybody thinks of when they think of a, uh, a huge pandemic, but uh, it is a little, you know, still in the in the same line. So uh, I thought we would cover uh, three pandemics, basically, and, and I don't want to, you know, we don't uh, have to spend a huge amount of time on any one of them. Uh, but the three big ones, it seems to me, in Roman history are the Antonine Plague uh, in the second century, uh, the Plague of Cyprian, which comes around in the middle of the third century, uh, and then the Plague of Justinian, which hits in five, I think, 541. Uh, and, you know, we can kind of go through all of those and, and you can help enlighten uh, me and the and the listeners about uh, you know just how these things happen over time and it, we're not we're not alone in history here. We are absolutely not alone in history. I'm not sure that that's any solace to anybody who's currently <laughs> dealing with it, but yeah, I mean, because I was thinking about this, like it's I've I've spent most of my adult life studying like bad things, like study my my son the other day who's three and a half was asking me what I was doing and I was telling him what I was working on and he's like he promptly went and told his mom, um, "Daddy's job is writing sad stories about bad people," and so, <laughs> uh, and so like I'm not like happy that we're living through a pandemic, but part of me is like, oh yeah, oh no, this is just like normal history shit. This is okay. We're there. <laughs> Right, right, yeah, it's happened before, and yeah. uh, probably will happen again. Who knows? Yeah, I would, uh, I would imagine. I don't think so. this is the end. I mean, I don't want to speculate, but uh. <laughs> unless unless the pathogens just give up, which, given the past couple billion years of evolution, I doubt they're going to. Yeah, that seems unlikely. That seems unlikely. Um, so let's let's start with the first of our three pandemics, which is the Antonine Plague. Uh, get started, I believe, uh, like the 160s uh, and lasts until the 180s. Also sometimes known as the Plague of Galen because Galen, the physician, is, our, is the main, I think, historical source uh, for discussions of the plague. Um, what? Tell us a, a little bit. I mean, we'll start with like what do we know about what the Antonine Plague was? It seems like there's still... Uh, a lot of speculation about this. Maybe it was smallpox. Maybe it was measles. Do we have any sense of where it came from? Like what what were the uh, sort of origins of the Antonine Plague? Uh, so there's a, a basic pattern in the Roman world with pandemics in that they seem to spread from southeast to northwest. That's um, that's not all that surprising because that's the point of contact with the tropics, which tends to be the reservoirs for um, most of these pathogens. Like they tend to develop. It's like it's just a matter of um, kind of density of evolutionary history. You're much more likely to have um, pathogens in native reservoirs closer to the equator because that's where they've had time to evolve. Um, so that seems to be the pattern of spread. They start either in Egypt or Arabia. The uh, the, the Antonine Plague, um, best guess is that it's probably from somewhere around the rim of the Indian Ocean. Um, best guess is that it's probably smallpox. There are arguments for measles. I think the smallpox arguments are better. But whenever we're talking about a, a pathogen in the past, we have to remember, like, even if it is smallpox. It's not necessarily the same strain of smallpox with which we're familiar today. Um, it may not present in exactly the same way. And as always, pandemics aren't 
um, just things that happen. They're fitting themselves into the existing um, state of population health, into existing trade networks, into existing cultural understandings of how disease works. And so that's going to affect how we can understand it in the present day. It's especially true um, with viral pandemics like uh, like we assume the Antonine Plague was because um, viral RNA doesn't survive in ancient remains unless you're really, really, really lucky, unless it's absolutely perfect conditions of preservation and you know what you're looking for. Uh, so it's hard for us to tell. Like, so you can recover uh, like um, Yersinia pestis bubonic plague because it's a bacterium and bacteria are so much larger. You can, it's not, you can find that in, uh, in even skeletal remains, viral RNA, not so much. Um, but yeah, so probably smallpox probably started spreading from um, Arabia and or Egypt, um, the major trade routes that linked the Roman world to the Indian Ocean and beyond. Um, and from there, it spreads slowly but surely. It kind of whiplashes back and forth across the empire, uh, hits Egypt in several waves. Uh, we're lucky enough to have the, as you as you pointed out, the testimony of Galen, probably the greatest physician of the ancient world, who was right there for it. So as ancient pandemics go, we know a lot more about the Antonine Plague than we do about most of the others. And what we know, I mean, it's it sort of uh, was devastating to the empire, right? I mean, the, the, there's... Uh, estimates of millions of people dying five million eight million i mean i've seen eight million sort of as the upper bound um i think i i don't know i can't remember if it's galen but some kind of eyewitness testimony uh contends that like five thousand people a day were dying in rome i don't know if that's an attempt at an accurate estimate or if it's just like a lot of people were dying every day and uh, here's this massive number that's hard to comprehend uh, but even the co-emperor of the time, Lucius Verus, died of this, probably, I think, of this pandemic. Um, talk about how, you know, sort of widespread this was and how much devastation it did. Yeah, so it got basically everywhere within the Roman Empire. And again, to come back to the whole point of pandemics, it's like you, the, every world gets the pandemics that make sense within its constraints. So the Roman world was deeply, deeply connected, and it brought together multiple ecologies, um, Long, it included a whole bunch of long distance trade, especially of bulk goods. There was a lot of movement of people, um, both voluntary and involuntary, a lot of movement, movement of slaves, movement of soldiers, and then also voluntary movement, movements of traders, um, people migrating from one place to another. So the Roman world is a pretty excellent petri dish if you're an opportunistic pathogen because uh it has lots of ways to get from point a to point b it's one of the reasons why smallpox makes sense as the probable cause of the the antonine pandemic is because you can get pretty far carry while you're carrying the disease before you become immobilized so if it's anywhere between 10 and 14 days incubation period 10 days in the roman world can get you from uh can get you from egypt to uh what's now to what's now istanbul 10 days can get you from uh, Carthage to the the southern coast of France under good sailing conditions. So it's really easy for a virus like that with a relatively long incubation period to spread vast distances really pretty quickly. Um, the the seven to eight million number seems to be the most convincing one. Um, I, that's mostly working backwards from assumed population of the empire, assumed infection rate, and assumed mortality rate. And if that's the case, it ends up killing about 10% of the empire's population. But I think the Antonine Plague is fascinating, especially as a starting point, because the Roman Empire was in real good shape in the second century. This is the high point of the Pax Romana. This is the golden age of the Roman Empire here. Um, 
by practically every metric, this is about as good as it was ever going to get for the Romans. And while this is a really big deal, it's not good. You get severe economic contraction. There's a whole bunch of uh, of kind of subsequent shocks that ripple outward through the economy, through the political system, through society. Um, a lot of social disruption and dislocation, cultural dislocation, um, a lot of uh, religious, uh, a lot of unsettling religious trends that go along with this as well. Uh the Roman Empire is pretty resilient at this point in time. And so while this is really bad, the, the, the Roman Empire weathers the shock. It continues. Um, they, you get uh, a whole new dynasty coming in that lasts, pr that keeps things pretty much as they were for another half century. Um, it takes a whole another series of shocks, which we'll talk about in just a minute here, I'm sure, with the Plague of Cyprian, um, before the Roman Empire really starts to teeter under the strain. One of the things, one of the things, my understanding of the Antonine Plague, one of the one of the the longer term effects, um, is a sort of, as you say, it didn't bring the empire down; that it recovered, but it kind of wore away at the empire's ability to recover long term from mm -hmm. from shocks like this. And one of the things that's um, th that sticks out to me is like when you study. Uh, or you, when you read about or like, you know, uh, listen to podcasts, for example, about like the early uh, empire or the Roman Republic, like the thing that, that always stands out to me about Rome is its ability to recover from like, especially militarily, I'm, I'm sort of thinking specifically militarily, from like devastating shocks, uh, whole armies being wiped out, you know, I mean, massive defeats, uh, you know, in the Second Punic War, for example. And just sort of like, it just sort of washes over. I mean, they put together another army and they're back in the field. And like, uh, it almost doesn't even register that this was a, a huge setback. Uh, one, of the, one of the things, my understanding of, of the Antonine Plague is uh, one of the things it did, and it, it sort of hit the Roman military hard uh, and made it, you know, less capable of sort of recovering uh, from those kinds of events and just like churning out another army like it it reduced the manpower and the capacity uh, for that kind of thing is that yeah I, th say? I think you see that more after the middle of the third century than after the Antonine Plague like one of the interesting anecdotes that you can tell the, the how severe the Antonine Plague was is that you get a whole huge batch of army retirements around 195 AD um, so if the term of enlistment is 25 years then that means that there was a huge uh, that there was a huge series of openings in the army around 170 so right around the time of the plague or the Antonine Plague this presumably ripped through the barracks of the Roman army Army and they had to go out and recruit a whole bunch of new soldiers. Now, the bit, there is a good argument to be made when you have an institution like the Roman army that depended on stability and depended on kind of institutionalized knowledge um, that it probably grew less effective if you've got a huge chunk of soldiers being taken out all at once, that that's pretty damaging to it. And that probably does re um, reduce its ability to respond to those, to those kinds of shocks in the future. Um, I think... You you only really see that dynamic, I think, with the plague of Cyprian in the aftermath, though. I think that's when it becomes really, really clear. All right, well, let, let's let's move to that. <laughs> that's a good segue. Uh, let's let's talk about the plague of Cyprian. Now, this this one comes around uh, around the middle of the third century, like two forty nine, two fifty. 
it's named after St. Cyprian was the Bishop of Carthage and like Galen is sort of the, uh, the main historical uh, eyewitness for, the, for these events. Um, let's talk about this one because origin-wise or, or sort of uh, the nature of the pandemic, um, again, the speculation is it's, it's viral, uh, maybe smallpox again, maybe measles. Uh, one theory, one interesting theory I've seen is maybe it was a kind of hemorrhagic fever like Ebola or, or something like that. Um, I've seen arguments that it was more probably more likely measles than smallpox because or or vice versa i guess but um you know it was probably whatever the antonine plague wasn't because there seems to be a lack of uh, kind of immunity built up in the in the empire to whatever uh, the plague of cyprian was so it, it looks like a new pathogen as far as the romans were concerned uh but get take us into the sort of origins of of this plague so the plague of Cyprian, like the like the Antonine plague, spreads from southeast to northwest. It start we we first start to see it in uh, Arabia, in uh, in Egypt. That's the starting point, and it travels from there up the trade networks that uh, that dominate that corner of the Roman Empire, reaches the Mediterranean, and then once it's in the Mediterranean, it's everywhere because that's the central artery of the Roman Empire is is the Mediterranean. Every every point at the Mediterranean uh, shore is connected to every other point by no more than a couple of steps. That's the, that's the nature of the state. Um, the Plague of Cyprian, I have no idea what it was. I think it's pretty hard for us to tell. The, the hemorrhagic fever makes sense, but I would think hemorrhagic fevers tend not always, but tend to have relatively short incubation periods. And so that's that's the the I'm I'm not a virologist, obviously, but that one seems to me to that would seem to me to be a block to that particular theory. But the symptoms that they describe seem way more severe than smallpox or measles. Um, so both of which they would have been at least mildly familiar with. And the, the whole thing about the plague of Cyprian, as far as we can tell, is that it was just like shockingly brutal and fast and lethal, which, again, leads you to think that it, may, it probably wasn't smallpox or measles. Um, yeah, as far as it goes, it's an interesting counterpoint to the Antonine Plague because the Roman Empire is so much less stable already in the middle of the third century. So you're already in the midst of an economic downturn. The Like, for example, the currency has been debased multiple times. You're in less firm territory in, in, in terms of what you can do monetarily. Um, there's already been a downturn in trade. You can tell by the distribution of shipwrecks. Um, the shipwrecks uh, were already down in the third century, even prior to the plague of Cyprian. So that means that economic activity was probably down as well. Uh, the Greenland ice cores show less act show less mining activity. Um, so the empire is just not in as good a place. There are more and um, more dangerous external threats. You have the the Sassanid Persians have uh, have risen up at this point. The uh, barbarians along the northern border of the empire seem to be more dangerous. They've uh, they've grown in social complexity and numbers. There's been a demographic explosion beyond the frontier. So. The empire is just not in as good a position to weather a severe pandemic. That's the that's kind of the baseline. Also, the climate is getting worse. There there's um, droughts and floods of the Nile in the 240s, both of them. Um, the, so the climate is less stable. It's more variable, um, which, again, is going to affect your overall resilience in the face of a pandemic. Um, 
we know, I think it's important to note just how little we know about the plague of Kyprian. So there's every reason to think that it was a big deal, but we can't trace its course. We're, we're much less certain about what the actual pathogen involved was. Uh, and you can be certain that it interacted with those other factors. Precisely how is hard to tell. Like the sources for the third century are just terrible to start with. Like we have, I mean, there are whole chunks of time where we just have no idea what happened. And so you can guess and you can write a narrative, but whether it's the right story or not is, is pretty hard to tell. Well, so th this is, I mean, this is going to be my next question. There's sort of, um, it doesn't seem, you know, casualty wise, like there's as good a, a sense of, how devastating it was. I've seen, again, the estimate of 5,000 people dying every day in Rome, which, uh, again, just seems like somebody's throwing out a number to describe the devastation that they're seeing. Um, but this this plague strikes uh, in the middle of a very tumultuous century for the Roman Empire. There's even uh, a term, the crisis of the third century, that covers this period. Um, talk and, and this sort of that that describes the sort of political upheaval of the empire, where at one point you find it uh, dividing into three empires: the Gallic Empire and kind of France and uh, sort of northwestern Europe, and then the Palmyrene Empire in the Levant and and Egypt, and uh, the rest of it you know kind of remains uh, sort of the Roman Empire. But uh, there's that division, and there's a lot of civil wars and kind of fighting uh, internally, which is ended uh, in the two eighties with the the accession of Diocletian, who imposes the uh, the tetrarchy, and sort of this is the point where uh, historians talk about a transition of the empire from the principate which kind of maintained the fictional trappings of a republic uh to the dominate where the emperor was no longer referred to as princeps he was referred to as dominus or lord and it's much more kind of openly nakedly uh authoritarian do we i mean do we know what uh the plague of kipri and how the plague of kipri kind of contributed uh to these political you know kind of political changes yeah, so I think it's we have to view all of these things as interlinked crises. So you have a crisis of political legitimacy, which is why you get usurpations along the frontiers. The emperor can't really trust any of his generals, whoever they might be, because they're all potential emperors. Um, you have soldiers being drawn away from the frontiers in order to fight in these civil wars. Soldiers being drawn away from the frontiers creates opportunities for uh, barbarian raiding and full-scale invasions, um, which in turn creates more turmoil along the frontiers and makes it more likely that any individual general is going to declare himself emperor and bring his troops away from the frontiers. So it's it's a vicious cycle of but that that kind of whipsaws back and forth between the between barbarians, political legitimacy and all and underpinning all of this is an economic crisis, right? And the economic crisis takes a few different forms. Um you can tell the coinage, the coinage is really, really, really debased from this period. So without a great monetary theory, the Romans were like, well, we need more coinage. OK, well, we'll just we'll just reduce the quantity of precious metal in it. Um, and so the coins from this period are are not particularly great. Um, that's one aspect of it. I think it's just kind of a cascading series of systems failures that you have the Roman Empire 
prior to the middle of the third century was really run on kind of a shoestring. Um, it was really heavily dependent on the buy-in of local elites all over the place. The emperor only had a staff of a few hundred people. That was the Roman central government. Then you had the army, of course, and the army was a pretty massive institution. But by and large, the emperor subcontracted the work of running the empire to local elites. And that was the deal. That's what got them to buy in. You get to stay powerful in your city, um, in your particular patch of countryside. As long as you send along the taxes and keep things under control, you can administer justice there. You get to be the big guy. Um, and in return, you receive the imprimatur of imperial legitimacy for for your local rule. Um, this is the system that underpins gladiatorial games, for that matter, that uh, it's part of the the deal between these local elites and the populace is we'll, we'll take care of you. We will be your conduit for complaints to the emperor. We will help make sure that in times of war, there are soldiers here. We'll help keep you fed. Uh, we'll provide entertainment if you live in an urban area. This is the deal. This is kind of the social contract that underpins that particular particular stage of the Roman Empire. What you see in the third century is that whole thing falls apart. And I think the plague of Cyprian is a big part of that because it's a massive economic shock. If as many people are dying as as we have reason to think were, then that's that's a shock to labor markets. That's a shock to both supply and demand of goods and services. Uh, it's just a it's just a massive underlying problem to deal with. And everything else can it can grow out of that and feed back into it. So if you have an escalating series of military crises, but you know some substantial portion of the population is dying. Well, where are you going to recruit soldiers from? Um, this is that's just one of the kind of problems that comes up with that. Uh, I think it's kind of a miracle that the Roman Empire lasted through the crisis of the third century. There was no reason why it had to. Uh, I think it's a pretty remarkable feat that first Aurelian and then Diocletian were able to put it back together at all. What emerged was much different, a much less friendly Roman Empire, a lot more iron fist than velvet glove in the fourth and, and early fifth centuries, but it was still the Roman Empire. So they managed to make it through. Now the, the third uh, pandemic uh, on our list here and, and the one I think um that may be the most significant, depending on how you uh, link it to other subsequent events. Um, but uh, and, and arguably, I think the most devastating in terms of uh, population loss, or maybe it's not even arguable, I don't know. Uh, but the, the third one is the Plague of Justinian, uh, which struck in uh, the 540s immediately, but then recurred uh, periodically uh, over and over in kind of uh, the Eastern Mediterranean uh, until the 8th century. Uh, we know in this case uh, that it was actually the bubonic plague. There's been evidence, DNA evidence, archaeological evidence that's shown that. Um, so rather than sort of getting away, I mean, get into sort of how the plague spread uh, and where where we think it came from. And also, uh, one of the things I wanted to, to get you to comment on is I know there was an article uh, published uh, and the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, I think, uh, in December uh, that argued that based on the available evidence, um, the 
estimates of the devastation of Justinian's plague are grossly overstated by historians. Uh, and I remember you had a, a, some some issues with that thesis, uh, which is sort of brand new, I guess. Um, but you you took issue with the that argument, so uh, you can kind of weave maybe weave that into your uh, your discussion here of kind of where the uh, the plague came from and and what effect uh, kind of how devastating it was in terms of uh, uh, the number of people who were killed. Yeah. So as far as we can tell at this point, bubonic plague has been around for a long time. So there's uh, there is both Bronze Age and Neolithic evidence of bubonic plague from uh, there's there was it was recently found. In a in a Neolithic mass grave in Sweden, um, six thousand years wow. old. It's been found in so it probably has something to do with what's called the late Neolithic collapse, uh, which is where you have these very large settlements that that popped up all over Europe um, that disappear pretty quickly, that that empty out pretty quickly. The reason for that is probably uh, is probably bubonic plague. It was one of uh, the pathogens that went along with what um, the anarchist anthropologist James C., uh, James Scott calls the late Neolithic multi-species resettlement complex, which or resettlement that rolls camp right off the tongue. There yeah, you go. <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. But basically in the Neolithic, what you're doing is you're bringing together all of these plants and animals into very close contact with one another that had not been so before. Uh, and the humble rat is one of those. So the uh, bringing all those things together in the Neolithic probably creates the first circumstances in which bubonic plague can spread because it's a rat. It, it's an illness that is spread by uh, that's spread by flea bites. Those fleas are normally found. Um, in their endemic reservoirs among like small prairie dwelling rodents or steppe dwelling rodents uh, under the right circumstances there seems to be an environmental connection uh, the range of those uh, of those rodents expands comes into contact with people the fleas spread from um, uh, from their natural reservoir, like it's prairie dogs in the Western United States right now harbor those fleas um, so that's the kind of rodent we're talking about Uh spread from those uh, their natural hosts to rats and where there are rats there are people and under the right circumstances uh the disease can travel a very great a, a very long way um it's made more devastating by the fact that in the middle ages we know for sure the flea the rat fleas could all, uh, also um could feed on grain and grain chaff so you didn't even need rats at that point um the fleas themselves could just travel in carts of grain from place to place um it's not normally spread person to person it can be under a very specific set of circumstances when um, when the plague gets into your lungs, what's called pneumonic plague. But it's pretty hard to spread uh, a bacterial um, a bacterial pathogen by coughing because bacteria is so much larger than a virus. Um, so, yeah, spread normally is spread by fleas, um, normally with normally with rats. Part of the reason the bubonic plague is so devastating in pre-modern times is because it spreads just as easily in the countryside as it does in cities. Um, normally, plagues hit population centers. If they're spread person to person, it makes sense, right? Density of people, um, unsanitary living conditions, diseases are more likely to spread. In the countryside, though, there are rats there, too. Uh, normally, you get one rat per household. So in the countryside, sometimes the density of rats is even higher than it is in cities. So My wife's not going to be happy to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> it's hey, we, not great. We have a rat in here, statistically speaking. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's exactly that's that's kind of the problem, and in the and so um, 
if you've got, you know, 80, 90, 95% of the population living in the countryside, the fact that you have a pathogen that can just as easily strike them as it can in cities uh, means that you've got the recipe for mass death, for mass mortality. Now, the Justinianic plague, um, probably like the others, spreads roughly from southeast to north uh, to northwest. So, whether that uh, whether it's coming through the Indian Ocean or whether it's coming overland via Persia or even via the steppe, those are all options. Those are all um, those are all corridors of travel and trade at this particular period. Um, it, show, it shows up first in the Eastern Mediterranean, then it slowly but surely spreads west. It spreads in several waves. There's been um, ancient DNA evidence found in multiple places, including Bavaria. Uh, so it, once it gets there, it sticks around for a long time, seems to be the, it seems to be the consensus. And it's part of what keeps populations throughout Europe um, relatively low in the early Middle Ages. It's uh, like the aftermath of the Black Death, it, it raises mortality. You're already in a much higher mortality demographic regime than we're used to in the present day. And the endemic presence of bubonic plague makes it even higher. So yeah, once it's there, it sticks around. And in terms of, I mean, in terms of the evidence, right? I mean, this, mm -hmm. this piece that argued, uh, you know, that none of the sources actually support a, the, the contention that this was a devastating plague written sources there's i think one of them was uh we're not finding like huge numbers of mass graves that would indicate a, a die off and uh you know talk if you can uh sure. maybe address a little bit i guess the argument that uh we're overstating how how damaging uh yeah. this plague was and and kind of because uh, i know i i i, I think you're uh, you remain on the uh, of the the position that it was actually uh, quite devastating. Yeah, I tend to think it was a pretty big deal for a few reasons. Um, so first, at that point, there is still enough of the Roman system of bulk trade of of relatively easy movement that a plague like that could still spread. I think if it had sprouted up. Um, kind of out of nowhere in the middle of the seventh century, given what we know about the seventh century, it probably would not have spread um, nearly as far. So I think there is still enough of the Roman trade network left in the middle of the sixth century for, for it to still be a possibility for it to spread the way that it did. Um, number two, as far as that particular paper was concerned, it's called, quote, an the Justinianic plague, an inconsequential pandemic. It's very clever. Uh, what they did. So they went and they assembled a whole bunch of sets of data and they ran through them and they said, look, no evidence of mass mortality here. No evidence of mass mortality here. No evidence of mass mortality here. The problem with it is that most of the data sets that they picked aren't even secondary proxy markers for population. So they're, they're like, well, there was no drop in, uh, in epigraphy, in inscriptions. Like, well, why would you expect mass death to cause people to inscribe things less? Like there's a, like, what's the connection there? At no point do they bother to, to they, do they bother to show that there is a correlation between population and the epigraphic habit? That's one example. Um, another is, well, they say we haven't found enough mass graves. You don't run across sixth century mass graves all the time, man. Like that's not, <laughs> you're, you're, you don't just like turn over a rock and you're like, oh yeah, here's what's very obviously a plague pit from the sixth century. They just found the very first rural mass grave uh, from the Black Death in England like three years ago. 
Nobody had ever found a rural mass grave, a rural plague pit from the Black Death, which you know killed somewhere around probably two to three million people in the English countryside. Took until 2016, 2017 to find one. So you're telling me we haven't found enough plague pits for to think that there's a mass die off? I just like. I think that's kind of crazy. Then they're like, well, okay, the written evidence doesn't speak to uh, doesn't speak to um, broad distribution of the plague, and the sources that do exist don't talk about it enough. Well, there aren't a whole lot of actual sources written in the 540s and the 550s. Um, it's a pr it, you're starting to get to the period where we don't have a lot of surviving material. I know because I read every single Latin language letter written in the 540s and the 550s. There just aren't that many of them. Um, so it's like Basically, it's like going into a massive dark warehouse, shining a flashlight, like getting two flashlights, shining them around and saying, well, I don't see plague here. <laughs> That's the and it's just like you the kinds of data that they have assembled are, are not especially good proxies for population or population loss. Um, what is pretty markedly clear is that there were a lot fewer people after around 550 than there were beforehand. We do have mass graves. We do have mass we do have mass graves that show the presence of bubonic plague. Um, what and we also know that given the environmental conditions at the time, you're probably dealing with a population that's much closer to the edge. Like there were there were a few really bad years, bad harvests. You're dealing with people who are much more likely to be malnourished than they would have been 30 to 50 years before. Um, I think there's every reason to think that this would have been a pretty dang lethal plague, whether that means that you're dealing with a 40 to 60 percent mortality like the like the Black Death of the 14th century. I don't know. Does what's what's your cutoff for inconsequential? 20 percent, 15 percent, 10 percent. All of those are bad. Like none yeah. of them are none of them are good. Like um, and the the kind of the upshot of all of those, no matter what number you choose as your cutoff point for, for consequential or inconsequential, is that they basically misstate the position of the quote-unquote Justinianic plague maximalists. Um, they're like, they say that this brought an end to the Roman world. Well, no, they don't. They say that the Justinianic plague was one of a complex of things that happened in the middle of the 6th century, including Justinian's wars of reconquest, especially in Italy, including some fairly severe climatic shocks that went on at that time, probably probably driven by volcanism, uh, by uh, by eruptions of volcanoes. Um, it gets a lot colder. The weather gets a lot worse. Um, it's part of a long-term climatic downturn. You can't grow grain in as many places. Like there are still spots where you go and you find a, a, a wine press or an olive oil press from the early sixth century in places where even today you can't grow um, olives or vines. Like so, you've got a you've got a diminution of the available arable to grow the standard Mediterranean crops. All of this is happening at the same time as you've got the noted presence of bubonic plague. Um, I just to me, I think that I think, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. I see a fair bit of smoke there. And I would assume that just because we can't actually see, like, you know, go stand in the fire, that the fire isn't there. In terms of the effects uh, or, you know, the, the contributions, I guess, uh, that that the plague of Justinian made. I mean, there, there's some profound um, connections that could be made from the devastation here you know millions of people tens of millions of people uh, potentially dying um to things that the major events of uh the sixth and seventh century and i you know among them 
there are arguments and I, that that the plague effectively ended uh, Justinian's attempt to reconquer the Western Empire. Like he had reconquered most of Italy, he conquered a lot of the uh, the sort of coastlines of the Western Mediterranean. But any attempt to sort of consolidate those conquests or build upon them and try to rebuild the empire was was uh, kaput after the uh, the plague um, and that extends to you know things like uh, the Saxon kind of uh, infiltration of Britain and, and other kind of uh, events in the western Mediterranean in the east which uh, is where um, I'm, I'm a little more familiar um, you have the plague spreading into Persia um, first uh, during the Lazic War, uh, which starts kind of, you know, middle of the 6th century. Um, and then, it, again, it kind of comes back uh, again and again periodically. There's uh, the Plague of Shiruya, uh strikes in the, like, 628 uh, under the, the Persian Empire uh, Emperor Kavad II, whose birth name was Sharuya, hence uh, the name of the plague. Uh, and that's, I mean, that's like right before the Arabs show up. And, and it, it seems likely, although we have terrible or non-existent really sources on the Sasanian Empire, it seems likely that um, these, you know, waves of plague contributed to weakening the Persian Empire so much that it, uh, you know, and enabled this sort of dramatic collapse uh, that took place when when the Arabs came on the scene in the uh, in the 630s. Um, and there's a similar argument, I, I think, to be made that uh, it weakened the, the Roman Empire enough uh, to make the Arab conquests of the Levant and, and Egypt possible. Uh, but if you so talk a little bit about kind of the uh, the impact of the plague of Justinian and, and you know, feel free to uh, go throw in your wildest connections to, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah, well, I think the my big takeaway from the plague of Justinian is that to me, it's the nail in the coffin of the Roman world. And by the Roman world, I don't mean the Roman Empire per se. I mean a system uh, like an economic and political economic system founded on the, the bulk transport of goods from place to place centered around the Mediterranean, that this was a very particular kind of world. It's like the archaeologists love the Roman world because it's like Ikea. You can go and you can just find the same stuff all over the place. But the way that you get that and like it's very easy to identify large quantities of especially pottery. But like people were eating pretty similar things. They had fairly similar diets. You had a lot of connectivity in the Roman world from place to place. Um, and that's founded on uh, easy mobility. It's founded on the ease of transport because the, the Romans had the infrastructure to do that, but also on pretty well-planned um, and effective tax systems. The Roman Empire was a resilient system. It withstood a whole bunch of different shocks, and the Sasanian Empire was a pretty resilient system, such as it was. The What you get with the Plague of Justinian is that it hollows out a lot of those systems. It makes it a lot harder to move goods from point A to point B. It drastically reduces the tax base. It reduces the pools of available military manpower. It's a challenge to political legitimacy and religious political legitimacy that when you have constant waves of mass mortality and mass death, it makes it a lot easier to tell your leaders to go screw themselves like that. It's part of a broader complex of instability. Um, and yeah, I think it just kind of hollows out pandemics under the right circumstances can 
hollow out state capacity. They can make it much less likely that you can respond to further shocks when they come. And I think that's exactly what the the rise of the Arabs out of Arabia is. I think it's part of that. I, I think it's it's a shock. And it's one that those states were less able to deal with. And, and especially in the context of Arabia, which had been a frontier zone between the, the Roman and, per and Sasanian empires, that both of which expended a great deal of energy, time and treasure to kind of manage relations there. That was that was ancient world frontier relations was you managed them. You you did your best to pick clients, to pick winners and to keep things under control without without having to exert a lot of direct force to do so. But as the plague hollows out both of those empires, it becomes a lot less it becomes a lot harder to manage affairs beyond the frontier. And, you know, you miss a few payments here and there. Um, maybe you're not paying attention when a new tribal leader comes up uh, who's got more aggressive plans. That I think this is kind of the context in which we have to understand the rise of Islam is that it's one where these empires are fighting each other. They're concerned with what's happening within their own borders. Their their capacity to, to actually do things is, an, is at an all-time low. Um, I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, that I mean that that uh, it's it's sort of the the perfect storm. I think it's hard to explain otherwise how uh, you know the Arabs are kind of uh, they they're still pretty much a ragtag bunch. I mean, when they they emerge from Arabia, I mean they've sort of trained and honed themselves on the 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 Riddle Wars in the on the peninsula. Uh, so they're they're battle hardened to an extent, but. It's hard to imagine that if things weren't at an all-time low, as you say, uh, that they could have conquered two, like the two superpowers of the day, uh, relatively easily. I mean, it took like one or two battles to completely collapse the Persian Empire. It took, uh, you know, the Battle of Yarmouk basically to cause the Romans to say, "Okay, we're we're gonna back off here and go like, uh, you know, retreat behind the mountains, uh, and hopefully, you know, we'll build up our capacity and be back," which. Uh, you know, never really happened. It's sort of uh, uh, there were there were ebbs and flows, but um, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's sort of you know, there's definitely some weakness you know going on here. There's some some loss of capacity in in both of these empires. So I think you're. I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's just like past a certain point, if. Soldiers have to get paid. You have to recruit soldiers, the, especially in the, the Roman case. Like you're relying on a regular standing army and regular standing armies require logistical support. They require systems and pandemics, as we're discovering right now in the present day, really strain your systems. They really strain what's available to you. They strain your ability to tax. They, they, they strain your ability to move goods from point A to point B. And all of those are things that you need if you're going to have a, if you're going to have a cutting edge standing army. Um, you have to constantly be recruiting new soldiers. You need new equipment. You need munitions factories. You, you need all of these things if you're going to have an army like that. And how are you going to respond to a highly mobile battle-hardened group of, a group of invaders who are not playing by that by those same kinds of rules who don't need exactly the same kinds of facilities that you need um, if your ability to keep your armies in the field and supplied and reinforced is is already compromised yeah I mean I think I think the contrast between uh, you know the Romans having an entire army wiped out by Hannibal and still winning that war versus 
uh, losing the Battle of Yarmouk and like that's it, they're done, uh, is is really striking, and it it does you know reflect I think that uh, there's some internal, certainly some internal issues happening at that yeah. point. Yeah, I mean the the Middle Roman Republic is probably of all of the states of the ancient world the one with the greatest capacity to mobilize manpower. And why that's the case is not entirely clear. Um, but what's what's clear is that that was the case. Uh, right. When you think yeah. about the, the scale of the armies that they could put into the field year after year after year after year, the ease with which they shrugged off high casualties, it was it's impossible to find a parallel in the ancient world for that. It just doesn't exist. Um, the circumstances that brought that into being, again, it's hard to say, but the fact is that that, that it was true. Like the late Roman Empire is probably the that suffers that catastrophic defeat at Yarmouk is probably much closer to the norm. But again, like when it comes to state capacity and when it comes to resilience, these kinds of things we've been talking about here, it's not so much the disaster itself. It's like, how do you respond to it? It's not the battlefield defeat because powers lose battles all the time it's can you replace the army that's lost it's can you you know if if the bridge falls down can you rebuild the bridge um those are the kinds of that's the the measure of capacity and what's clear is that neither the the sasanids nor the late nor the eastern roman empire were capable of responding so yeah i think on that note i mean to move into uh i think i called it uh, in the newsletter yesterday, you're apropos of nothing in particular. <laughs> he saw <laughs> the death of an empire. Um, you know, you talk about uh, the fall of Rome and this tendency, which I think is a natural one. Um, you can uh, point to Edward Gibbon as the guy who kind of uh, made 476 the date for the fall of the Roman Empire. But uh, if he hadn't done that, somebody else would have come along with another date because there is this sort of desire to like put a period on the sentence, right? To say, mm -hmm. this is when it all ended. And I, historians have talked about the sack of Rome in 410. They've talked about, you get some Julius Nepos fans who say the Western Empire didn't really end until he died uh, in 480. Uh, you get people who talk about the uh, Diocletian's reforms as, a, as an end to, the, to an empire uh, in a sense in the beginning of a new kind of empire. I think you've, I mean, you've talked here about uh, Justinian's plague and the sort of changes in the middle of the sixth century that ended the Roman system, not you know, not so much uh, the physical kind of political empire, but the system in the Mediterranean. Uh, but but ultimately, I think what you what you say in the piece is it's not about that that point at which you sort of say this is where everything changes it's a process right i mean it's mm -hmm. sort of the development of the conditions uh, that that lead to the collapse yeah that's that's my big um that's my big thesis on declining empires is that it's never just like a it's never just a moment it's never just like snap bam the empire is gone it's that there there have to be the right conditions in place for for that big dramatic break to happen at all. Um, if you're going to have like the dramatic battlefield defeat that leads to the that leads to the sack of the capital city, um, the gods being carried away as trophies, uh, all that good stuff. If you're if you've gotten to that point, then something went wrong beforehand, and that's not meant to be like tautological in the sense the uh, in the sense that like because the because the bad thing happened, there had to be bad things before that. It's that there are structural preconditions for large scale state collapse that. 
the things that uh, that large scale states in order to survive have to have systems that underpin them. They have to have uh, they have to have structures that tie them together politically. They have to have a particular political economy. They need to have a particular kind of military organization that suits them. That um, can be it can look a lot different. I mean, like steppe empires look a lot different than sedentary empires. You know, they're no less real for it. Um, the, but they have to have systems in place. And what you can see when one of those things falls apart is that something has gone wrong systemically. And that's my take on the end of the Roman world is that I think that there were things systemically wrong at, after particular points in various regions. Like, And what could happen, it could happen very quickly or very slowly. It could be either a slow decay or a rather rapid transformation. But the things that underpinned the Roman state and the Roman way of life, the Roman way of doing things did go away. Um, you know, historians want to talk about a long transformation of the Roman empire or whatever, like, yeah, but at some point there was a Roman empire and then there wasn't, that's not necessarily a thing that happens overnight, but the tax collectors stopped coming. The, uh, they stopped recruiting soldiers for the army. Um, Roman governors became barbarian kings. Roman aristocrats, you know, went on doing their thing for the most part, but like that's Roman aristocrats doing their thing. The, like, it was, the world did change. The Roman state did go away. People were not necessarily worse off for that all over the place, but states do things. And I think it's important for us to understand what those things were. Um, that's where the parallels with the present day, such as they are, come into play. Yeah, I, I mean, as I was reading this, I kind of flashed back to graduate school and, and um, you know, the, the kind of uh, parallel if, you, if you're in Middle Eastern history is the decline of the Ottoman Empire. Mm -hmm. uh, and I feel like the, the scholarship on, on the Ottoman Empire is almost going in the opposite direction direction in a sense because the traditional kind of orientalist view was uh you know everything started to decline in like the 1560s which you know i mean like the empire was around for 350 years after that come on mm -hmm. but okay so like it all went wrong when suleiman the magnificent died and and everybody all the ottoman rulers after that were depraved or you know drunk or you know kind of debauched in some way uh and and this there's this long period of decline that usually coincides with uh, people's pet theories about uh, Islam and, you know, it's like fundamentally backwards and, and they don't really get the modern world. And, then, and, and uh, you know, theories about uh, princes, you know, there was a point at which the, the Ottoman uh, kind of heirs stopped going out and governing territories and, and kind of participating in warfare because uh, they got tired of fighting civil wars every time an emperor died. Uh, and so there's this sort of undercurrent of like, oh, they, they, they got like feminized because they spent all their, the princes spent all their time in the harem surrounded by women and, you know, feminized them. And that led to bad rulers. And like, there's a lot of these kind of bad pet theories about what caused the decline. And the, the, the tendency now, I think, is to, to talk instead uh, about the empire kind of changing to meet uh, the challenges that were posed, uh, especially in the 19th century, and kind of transitioning away from an authoritarian kind of arbitrary empire to a bureaucratic state, in a sense, if you can actually have a bureaucratic state that big and that kind of heterogeneous. Mm -hmm. And and this was, you know, and, and in a sense, it was World War One uh, that blew up that 
transition and, and that you know these things had only started changing kind of in the middle of the 19th century uh and we don't know how they would have played out had uh basically had the ottomans not taken the wrong side of the war uh and wound up you know having the empire taken apart and i you know i i wonder you know i think it'll probably things will probably settle it uh at something a little less kind of uh, uh you know singly um you know justified or caused uh but it is an interesting it is interesting to sort of watch even since i was in graduate school to watch the 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 development in how people talk about uh the end of that empire yeah i mean the ottoman decline thesis is a hell of a thing like how you can have a quote-unquote declining empire for 350 years is pretty insane to me <laughs> like that's I mean, especially because well, people i mean people say the same thing as I, I you see it the same thing said about uh, the Byzantine Empire, the, mm-hmm. it all was downhill after the Battle of Manzikert, which, you know, 400 years, like what, <laughs> what was going on there, right? Yeah. Or, you know, it was all downhill after the the Fourth Crusade, which, okay, I mean, that's still like 250 almost years uh, to, to decline. It's a lot. It's a lot, like a long period of time. Uh, and I wonder if it's like, if there's a difference in sort of the traditional view of like a, a true like Western empire must have been a shock to see that decline. But an Eastern empire, even the Byzantines, which are kind of Greek by that point, <laughs> we're not really sure about Greece. It's like, is it really Western or not? And like, you know, they're more decadent and things get a little more decayed and, and you know, depraved in that part of the world, you know. And I wonder if that's like... Uh, the difference in how we talk about these sorts of things. Yeah, I think there's I think there's a large piece of that. I mean, in the Ottoman case, it's like there's no evidence for reduced military capacity in the Ottoman Empire until like the maybe even the 1740s. Yeah, like, it's not. I mean, there the, what what is what you see is parody, really. It's not yeah. like the Ottomans are in decline. It's that the rest of Europe has caught up to them to some degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, they're they're not a guaranteed to win every war anymore. It's not, uh, it's sort of a more, as you said about, you know, Yarmouk, it's sort of a more normal thing, actually. The condition mm-hmm. that you see in the, the 18th century is sort of the normal back and forth that you would expect to see. And, and it's, I think the the centuries before that, where the Ottomans just kind of rolled over everybody, uh, that are the exception. Yeah, there's this is uh, I mean, not to, not to like get too far off topic here, but like I think there's a sense in which the Ottoman Empire of the 16th century, because it was so blessed with resources, uh, it never had to develop these like arcane fiscal tools for waging war in the same way that European states of the period did. So like in order for Charles V to go to war, he had to borrow money from people all the time and they had to find like enough and enough that his son eventually bankrupted them. But like basically you end up with things like a long-term interest bearing public debt, which is not, uh, which is pretty, which can be pretty problematic, but like you never need that in the Ottoman world. You never need right. to have like those kinds of absolutely batshit mechanisms of paying for wars that you really genuinely can't afford. Um, and by the 18th century in most of the, in most of Western Europe, those mechanisms have evolved into the fiscal military state because they actually do have the resources now and you can amplify them many, many times over via those crazy arcane previously batshit tools in a way that the Ottoman empire quite can't, but that's, that's my own personal theory. I don't know. 
No, I think I mean I, I think that's right, and I think that's that's what you start to see in the the 19th century. There is a sense that okay, uh, these other states have really caught up to us, and they've developed these tools to manage their 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 business, and we need to kind of follow suit and adopt those things. And yeah, I mean you know uh, to an extent, it just never had a chance to. Uh, to play out in the Ottoman Empire the way it did in in the you know much of the rest of Europe because uh, World War One happened and that was it. Yeah, you can't like look at the Ottoman Empire around 1600 and think anything other than these guys had their shit together so much better than than every European state at the time. <laughs> yes, I had uh, one of my professors in grad school used to say, uh, or no, actually he quoted uh, I think Marshall Hodgson who was like the mm-hmm the you know middle east studies guru at the university of chicago he's like the guy who literally you know wrote the book on teaching uh middle eastern history uh and he used to say you know if an alien or he wrote actually in a in a in a article once if an alien like plopped down in the 17th century on earth and had no idea what was going on uh he would assume he or she would assume that the world was about to be conquered by islam i mean you know mm-hmm. such was the the sort of state of the the muslim world at the time and yet we know now uh th- they had actually kind of moved past a peak already by that point yeah so Let's now, in the in the spirit of this, again, apropos of nothing in particular, piece, <laughs> uh, you write in 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 your Mother Jones piece, um, when the real issues come up, healthy states, the ones capable of handling and minimizing everyday dysfunction, have a great deal more capacity to respond than those happily waltzing toward their end. But by the time the obvious glaring crisis arrives and the true scale of the problem becomes clear, it's far too late. The disaster, a major crisis of political legitimacy, a coronavirus pandemic, a climate catastrophe, doesn't so much break the system as show just how broken the system already was. Uh, and I, I think that gets it at the fundamental question, like, uh, how much can you actually see this kind of thing coming? I think that without saying that like every crisis that comes up is a validation of my pre-existing biases <laughs> which is which is always a risk uh, without go, without going down that particular road i mean i don't think that you had to be crazy to think that like if there was a mass public health emergency not having um universal health care um, or mechanisms for getting health care to people or for getting effective health care to people uh was going to be a problem. I think it's fairly easy to see that one coming. Um, in nor- like when you have a lot of people who don't have the, who are living paycheck to paycheck, um, who don't have more than a few hundred dollars saved up, if 30 to 40% of the population loses their jobs, like where does that leave you? Um, and if you have a welfare state that is not especially good at providing welfare to its inhabitants as we as we have in the United States like it's not especially hard to see that you don't have the pre-existing mechanisms necessary to get people the the resources that they need to last out the crisis like i think the the contrast between try between the bill that the that just went through the the coronavirus relief bill or whatever whatever the hell they're calling it um 
trying to get people 1200 bucks a few weeks down the line or maybe even a few months down the line and the germans deciding last week that they were going to give that they were going to give freelancers 5000 euros and the check and like the money already being deposited in people's bank accounts now like right. That's that's the contrast or Denmark saying, you know what we're going to do? OK, we're going to cover people's salaries while they're home um, and we'll just feed it through the we'll just feed it through the existing systems. If you don't have those systems or if they've been gutted or if they don't work, then you're not going to be able to use them to meet the challenges that come up. Like you're either going to have to build new systems or you're just going to have to let things break. And like so. If you've been concerned about things like the loss of state capacity or the lack of resilience inherent in things like just-in-time supply chains, or if you've been following, or you're one of the, frankly, very few people in the United States that's been following the slashed budgets of county public health offices over the last, uh, especially the last 10 to 12 years, like the the ingredients were all here. And I think there were, there were enough signs beforehand to say like, ah, that's probably not great. So similarly, if you're, if you're looking for a comparison, um, in the Roman world, if you could say, well, look at how much trouble they had putting armies in the field after about 400. It's not hard to see that, like, there's a lot of ways for that to go wrong if you're f suddenly faced with an array of military challenges in the next several decades. I, I think, I mean, what what worries me and, and um, well, yeah, what, what worries me here is is not so much that this is going to be it because i don't think it is i think that uh this pandemic will end and we will recover the, the united states will recover uh to some extent it might not be to the full extent it might take a long time it took a long time to recover from a comparatively much smaller crisis in 2008 uh, but we will convince ourselves at least that everything's recovered uh, on the whole, like on the main sort of the media will convince us and the political establishment will convince us that everything's, everything's pretty much back to normal, uh, even if it's not. And, and so we're just going to like roll on to the next catastrophe. I mean, I, you know, you see people who are opposed to single payer healthcare who have no plan to even get us to some form of universal healthcare. And I'm not specifically talking about the likely democratic nominee for president, but he's <laughs> in that group who say things, you know, go on Twitter or, you know, go on TV and say things like, uh, you know, any vaccine or treatment for COVID-19 should be free. And it's like, okay, what happens to the next disease though? Like you can't do that piecemeal and expect that you're going to survive like if you know inherently like implicitly that it's the right thing to do in a situation like this to to you know make the treatment available for free universally then you must know on some level that you need to have this be the case for healthcare in general and you have to tax you know the extent that it is required to build a system like that uh but you know it, it's it's irrational to just say okay let's do it this one time but then we're going to go back to the way things were where you know a bunch of people couldn't get treatment and the next time a disease hits uh, we'll be right back in the same situation. It's it's ridiculous to me, uh, but that that is my fear that it's just going to kind of uh, roll along. The system's just going to keep rolling along. See, that's where I I'm, I hate to call myself an optimist because I'm very much not an optimist. But uh, <laughs> the 
I just think that what we're seeing right now is that this particular what this pandemic is going to change things. I don't know how it's going to change them, but I can guarantee that things are not going to be the same afterward. That there is not we are not just going to snap back to the prior state of affairs. That can't happen. Our baseline has changed. Now, could that uh, could that be bad? Absolutely. A lot of ways for that to be for that to go bad. Um especially if the group that comes out of this offering the uh offering the cure happens to be uh right-wing authoritarians then that's that's a way that this could go real, real bad. But there's also an opportunity here to shake up a pretty sclerotic gerontocracy of a political class, because I think it's it's really an emperor has no clothes moment that like when Nancy Pelosi goes out there and she says like, well, what about refundable tax credits? Like, are you out of your goddamn mind? <laughs> like that is that is a literal, literal let them eat cake moment. Like yes. just. That is, I mean, I mean, I don't mean that figuratively. That's like, well, if they can't have bread, why don't they just eat cake? Like, what the fuck is a refundable tax credit going to do? Um, right. Or if you've got Joe Biden out there saying, no, you know, I still don't think we need to do Medicare for all, but you're edging closer and closer to the idea of, well, we should just pay for this thing. Like, you have you have space to do some systemic reevaluations. And not just of things like just-in-time supply chains, not just of things like, you know, making sure that 90% of all the ICU beds in this country are always occupied. Like, that's the—you have an opportunity to rethink some fairly fundamental things and to rebuild better systems in the future. Now, will that happen? I mean, that's the part I'm not an optimist about, but I think there's the potential there for for us to have some real good, real hard conversations and for some new ideas um, that actually meet the needs of the moment to to come to the fore. Like the neoliberal world order one way or another is is coming to an end here. Like if if you've got major political figures in the UK who are like, you know what, Margaret Thatcher was wrong. We do live in a society. Like if you've hit that point, then um, <laughs> I think then I think it's fairly clear that we're on to the next thing and we're grasping for whatever that next thing's going to be. Like I said, it doesn't mean that that next thing is going to be good, but it has the potential to be. And that's the part that I'm optimistic about. All right. So let me now you've that's your optimistic take. Let me ask yeah. you, as you look at, um, you know, the fall of the Roman Empire and look around you at what you're seeing now, uh, is there uh, a pessimistic take? And I, I mean, the ultimate pessimistic take, I think you're right, is for uh, the people to offer who are offering an actual solution to wind up being right-wing authoritarians and you, you you know you've already mentioned that but uh is there anything any other thing that you sort of look around here and look at you know the what you what you've studied and say oh that's that's not good uh that this is a dress rehearsal for for climate change and the the largest economy in the world can't get it it can't get its shit together for long enough to put out test kits for a for a fairly simple coronavirus like that's the that's the pessimists take. So if you've got something that demands large scale federal action, like I think it's real easy to look at this and say, man, the federal government of the United States is has been absolutely gutted and is we are and we are edging close to being little more than a currency union built around the Fed um, that practically all the state capacity, all of the small s state capacity is residing other places than federal bureaucracy and that we're going to need to figure out some supra state, but lower than the federal government levels of, uh, uh, 
political authority in order to get in order to get something done. I don't know what that's going to be, but like you need to have state governors working together, mayors or somebody to meet challenges at something greater than the local or or regional level, um, because the federal government just does not appear to be capable of meeting those challenges. And whether that's a matter of just the political class or like the levers that we are capable of pulling in a constitutional sense are not effective. um, I'm not sure. But I think that's the pessimist's take is that we're, you know, three months away. We're going from tennis court oath to arresting Louis the 16th fairly quickly. I think that's one of the dangers. <laughs> All right. All right. Um, so I, I think we'll we'll leave people there. Um, again, the fall of Rome, tides of history, uh, both excellent podcasts that you should check out. Is there anything uh, else that you're you're promoting that we should mention um absolutely not i have all I have right no, i have nothing oh yeah no oh wait no i'm writing a book that's coming out next year i'm almost well, done see, with the book draft i can't believe i forgot that <laughs> seems like an oversight but yeah okay. the draft is due in like three and a half weeks how did how is that not at the front of my mind uh yeah so i will be i will be throwing out quite liberally uh pre-order links to that when it comes up that'll be in a few months um until that point no nice. I have what, what is the what, what what's the book um the book is tentatively entitled the crunch and it's about um the collision of finance and all of the other things that are happening around 1500 so voyages of exploration the printing press uh gunpowder warfare uh the rise of states and how those laid the groundwork for um future european hegemony while at the same time making life quite miserable for people who were actually alive during that period of time excellent I love to hear about people's lives being miserable in the past, in the yeah, past I, not right I, now in the past. I, again, as my son said, sad stories about bad people. <laughs> well, uh, you know, if, if nothing else, if we don't have you back before then, uh, definitely, uh, I would love to have you back on to talk about that when it comes out. So, uh, keep, keep me in mind. I certainly will. Thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure chatting with you. And I, I, always, I am a subscriber. I enjoy being a subscriber. The updates are wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Patrick. That's, that's really kind of you to say. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I'm a huge fan. I'm, I'm jealous of your uh, ability to do a better podcast than I do. Um, <laughs> but, but other than that, no, I'm a, I'm a huge, huge fan of your stuff. And, and, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's, uh, you know, just keep, keep doing that. I love, uh, you know, the more history podcasts we can have out there, I think, uh, the better. And, and yours is one of the, one of the best. So, uh, kudos for that. Well, that's kind of you to say, thank you. Thanks for coming on the show, Patrick, and uh, take care. Try to stay safe out there. You too. Thank you. One more time, I'd like to thank Patrick Wyman for coming on the program. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed that. I think Patrick has uh, both an entertaining grasp on the the history of these kinds of things and uh, some valuable things to say about our present circumstances. Uh, Fall of Rome, Tides of History, uh, link to those in the show description along with his Mother Jones piece. To all of you, uh, again, I hope you're staying safe and practicing good uh, containment procedures. Uh, and another, I'd like to offer another hearty thank you to those of you who are out there doing 
the things that are keeping the society functioning uh, under a, a real crisis. Thank you, uh, and please stay safe. Uh, until next time, as always, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.